We'll continue with our series in Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans. This evening we're going to consider the law established by faith. The law established by faith and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, I'm going to read verse 27 through to the end of the chapter. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, I keep going back to those two verses. You do well to really memorise those two verses. They really are the launch pad for the rest of this letter. Verses one, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul declared that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ and that it is the power of God unto salvation, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Very important words there. Extremely important words. You think, how could there be power in words? But that's what he's telling us. The gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. doesn't get any more important than that, does it? The gospel of Christ that Paul is not ashamed of tells us that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And more broadly, as you read the, the Bible, you'll see that the gospel teaches that Jesus fulfilled the law's demands in his life and in his death for all who were trusting in him. He fulfilled the law. And as it says in Romans chapter 10, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe in him. So you can see how important the gospel of Christ is. As for the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel, that is the opposite of sinfulness. None of us are able to stand before the holy and righteous God in our own righteousness, our self-righteousness, and that is because we are the complete opposite of being righteous. We are sinful. Not righteous, but sinful. We're the other side of the coin. Jews and Gentiles alike. There is none righteous, no, not one. However, all who believe the gospel of Christ are covered in the righteousness of God. We've been through all this already and it's worth recapping on. Perhaps you remember saying, me telling you rather, that Christ is our righteousness. Those who believe in him are covered in his righteousness. Such people are acceptable to God through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his gospel. Full stop. 
Paul gave a detailed explanation of the righteousness of God and being justified by faith in Jesus. Having the righteousness of God, being justified by faith, mean one and the same thing. If you have the righteousness of God, then you are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul talked extensively about that in chapter 3, verse 21 through to 31. And it's, I'm going to read them verses again for you now. Chapter 3, verse 21 through to the end of that chapter. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You can see already it's all about Jesus here. Whom God hath set forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood. That means that God has been appeased. His righteous anger has been appeased by faith in the blood of Jesus. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. In other words, even the Old Testament saints who were in the world long before Jesus came into the world, if they are in heaven now, it is because of the um, the the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that finished work of Jesus at Calvary's cross. Verse 26. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And and so on. We'll look at those verses again soon. To say that justification by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is an important doctrine would be an understatement. As the Baptist preacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of chapter 3 verses 21 through to the end of the chapter, this is what he said, and I don't doubt it. He said, it is the most important and crucial passage in the whole of Scripture the very heart and centre of the gospel. With all that in mind, today we shall consider verses 27 through to 31 of chapter 3. But first of all, we'll look at verses 27 and 28 again. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. If heaven was inhabited by souls who had merited or earned a place there through obedience to God's laws, there would be room for much boasting, wouldn't there? However, as Paul has already shown from the Old Testament scriptures, all are under sin and fully deserving, not of heaven, but of hell. In the immediate context 
of this passage of scripture, self-righteous Jews whose ancestors had received the law in the wilderness of Sinai after being delivered by God from slavery in Egypt, they are the ones who are being addressed in verse 27, where Paul says, where is the boasting? Then it is excluded. To the Jewish hypocrite who teaches God's law and judges other people by God's law, whilst he remains a breaker of that law, Paul had already said in chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonourest thou God. Those Pharisaic Jews who went around teaching and judging others and, and they were like whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, but inside full of corruption. And they were boasting in the law of God, which they broke. Hypocrites. No room for boasting. Certainly not from self-righteous Jews. However, as well as applying verse 27 to the Jew with all his boasting, it must surely apply to anyone else who vainly boasts that he has done enough to secure his eternal salvation and right standing before God. And there are many of them around, and I'm sure that I was one as well before I was saved by the grace of God. How often do you hear people say, well, if there is a God and if there is a heaven, I'm fine, you know, I'm not a murderer, I've done nothing wrong, and I've done all sorts of good things, I give to charity, and so on and so on. A bit like the... um, the Jewish Pharisee in the temple who was blowing his trumpet and boasting that he's not an adulterer, he's not a murderer and and so on. And, And this is how people are by sinful nature. They seem to imagine that they can impress God. And they boast and blow their own trumpet. And God is not impressed. Paul has made it crystal clear in the preceding verses that the righteous are people who are trusting in Jesus and in him alone, believing that he has appeased the righteous and holy wrath of God by his self-sacrifice. They believe that Jesus was wounded for their transgressions, that Jesus was bruised for their iniquities. Therefore, as a Christian, your boast can only be in Jesus and most certainly not in yourself. Not only here in, the, in, in Paul's epistle to the Romans, but elsewhere, Paul said in very easy to understand language that there will be no boasting in heaven. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, he said, For by grace are ye saved, through faith, And that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Again, there will be no boasting in heaven. No patting each other on the back and saying, you really deserve to be here, didn't you? What a wonderful person you were when you were in the world. There'd be none of that at all. People in heaven will be too busy bowing down before 
the lamb upon the throne, worshipping him, praising him, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Dear Christian, your salvation from sin is an undeserved gift of God. It cost you nothing and you contributed nothing at all. I say nothing at all because Christians, they can't resist adding at least something to it. Just something. Give me the credit for a tiny bit. Not at all. It is by grace through faith in Jesus. Let's face it, we are all prone to boast about our achievements. I'm pretty sure that every one of us in here has boasted about the things that we've done. We've exaggerated our achievements in some way. We like to look good before others. May it be that when you boast, it is along the following lines. I will make my boast in Jesus, the Lamb of Calvary, by his death, I now am ransomed, once a prisoner, now set free. I will make my boast in Jesus, in robes of righteousness. Sin committed, now forgiven, I'm an heir with Christ by grace. Amen to that, eh? Let's move on to verses 29 and 30. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Long before anyone else, the Jews received the oracles of God. And what a privilege that was for them. It really was a privilege that they should have the, 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 the oracles of God And in those oracles, it's all about Jesus. The prophecies, the laws that are contained in the oracles, in other words, the Old Testament, it all points to the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. And they received that long before anyone else. Oracles that speak of helpless sinners being covered with the righteousness of God through faith in a divine redeemer, Let me give you an example of what was given to the Jews in the Old Testament scriptures. There was a man by the name of Job in the Old Testament book of Job. And he most certainly understood and believed in the Redeemer who was to come into the world. It's worth turning to the Old Testament book of Job, chapter 19. We will be coming back to Romans chapter 3, but I'm going to turn back to the Old Testament book of Job. It's the book just before uh, the Psalms, Job 19. Bear in mind, this is what the Jews had in their oracles. Chapter 19, verse 25 through to 27. look what Job said for I know that my redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth Job is talking about a near kinsman a redeemer who will stand on the earth on the latter day 
And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. What is he talking about there? He's talking about a time long after he's dead and gone. And yet he says he's going to see his Redeemer. He's talking about seeing his Redeemer in a glorified body. And the Redeemer that he's going to see, he now refers to as God. So his kinsman Redeemer is God. And he is going to see his kinsman Redeemer. Who do you think he's talking about there? Who else could he be talking about other than the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 27, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. That man Job, he had a real hope. He was looking ahead to the day when he would see the one who would redeem him by his grace. And he would see the Lord Jesus Christ standing upon the earth in the latter day. And what a sight to behold that will be. And that is the sight that all of the redeemed will see. And and what a wonderful sight that will be when Jesus comes again. I just don't get it. People who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, what do they have to look forward to? Nothing. Nothing at all. Christian, we will see the Lord Jesus Christ standing upon the earth when he comes in power and glory and he gathers up his elect. What a day that will be when our Saviour we shall see when we behold his face, the one who saved us by his grace. It is believed that Job was a Jew. However, it is clear that the Jews would not be the sole beneficiaries of God's grace and mercy. Whether Job was a Jew or not, I didn't look that deeply into it and it really doesn't matter. The Old Testament scriptures make it very clear that Jews and Gentiles alike will be beneficiaries and are beneficiaries of God's grace and mercy through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to turn to yet another Old Testament passage that makes this very clear. Isaiah chapter 49. It really couldn't be clearer. Verses 1 to 6. Again, this is what the Jews had long before everyone else. In fact, it was about 700 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. Look at this. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through to 6. Chapter 49, 1 to 6. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people, from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name, and he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. 
and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have laboured in vain, I have spent my strength for naught and in vain, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now saith the Lord, now saith Jehovah that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And pay attention to verse 6 here. And he said, it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. Very clear from that Old Testament prophecy that the Lord Jesus Christ, that his salvation or salvation through faith in him would reach the uttermost parts of the world. A Jew, a Jew who clearly understood that being justified by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is for the Jews and Gentiles alike was a man called Simeon. For example, when Jesus was presented at the temple in Jerusalem as a little baby, Simeon held him in his arms and he prayed. And this is what Simeon said. Lord, now lettest thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Bearing in mind Simeon was looking at baby Jesus whom he was holding in his arms. He was holding in his arms the one who laid the foundations of the earth. And Simeon beheld the saviour, the redeemer, the one who Job was looking forward to seeing in the latter day. He held him in his arms. Mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which has prepared before the face of all thy people a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of the people Israel. In that statement there, Simeon spoke of the Gentiles and the Jews, Jesus, that baby Jesus coming as a saviour to Jews and Gentiles alike. When Jesus returns, he will gather up all his elect, all who have been saved and justified by the grace of God through faith in him throughout all history. They will comprise Jews and Gentiles and not one of them will be missing. Going all the way back to righteous Abel, the son of Adam, and I don't know, God only knows, maybe Adam and Eve themselves. Let's have a look at the last verse in chapter 3, verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. I hope you're with me so far because I've really hammered home the fact that if you're a Christian and if you have a heavenly hope, if you are a Job who looks forward to that day when you see your Redeemer standing on the earth and you see God with your own eyes in your body, your glorified body, if that's you, then it is 
it's not because you have kept the law. There's no boasting in heaven and your boast is in Jesus. The one who fulfilled the law's demands. If you've got that clear, and I, I trust you have. So, the question might be raised. Do we then make void the law through faith? Do we make void the law through faith? What's the point in having the law if we're justified by faith in Jesus? Is there any point having that law if it is by faith that a hell-deserving sinner is saved and justified? Well, Paul answered that question very emphatically and in the strongest possible terms when he said, God forbid, yea, we establish the law. That takes me back about 15 years to when I attended a public debate between a Christian and a Muslim. The Muslim proposed that the UK should adopt Islamic law, Sharia law. At that time, I was living in a particularly violent part of London and the best that the Christian could do in that debate was to say, we're under grace, we're not under the law. And I was squirming in my seat when I heard him say that. I, for one, praise God that as a Christian, I have been saved and justified not through any obedience on my part to the law, but through faith in Jesus and his blood. And as such, I really am governed by grace and not by law for my acceptance before God. It is by faith. Having said that, what I and I'm sure others in that audience, Christians that is, wanted to hear at that debate is that we need laws we need laws that mirror God's perfect laws to deter criminals and those laws need to be enforced unless we want to live in a lawless society where anarchy reigns supreme. We can rightly consider godly laws and the enforcement of those laws as God's restraining grace. We can thank God for godly rulers who enact godly laws. We can thank God for our police who enforce those laws. We can thank God that criminals are locked away in prisons. It's all part of God's restraining grace in a world uh, that is filled with corruption and wickedness. Without the rule of law, our streets would be red with blood. And it's not enough to simply say, we're under grace, we're not under the law. Telling a Muslim that. When it comes to God's moral law, the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ condensed the Ten Commandments into two great commandments. He said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. So the Ten Commandments, God's laws, his moral laws, absolute laws, laws where God doesn't move the goalposts from one day to the next. The Ten Commandments, what are they about? They're about love. 
loving God with your whole being, loving your neighbour as yourself. So, do we then make that law void? A law which is all about love? Do we make it void through faith? That's the question that's being raised in verse 31. Why would anyone want to make void a law that is all about love? I grant you that the ungodly have no desire to love God and abortionists have no desire to love their neighbour as themselves. We live in a world where the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ, saying, let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us. In other words, they throw God's laws in the bin. We don't want God's laws. We don't want his restraints. We want to be free. I get it that a world that is in rebellion against God would most certainly want to throw God's laws in the bin. But surely this is not the case with people who are trusting in Jesus as their saviour from sin. They are people who confess their failure to love God with their entire being, they including me, and their failure to love their neighbour as they ought to. Again, that includes me. They thank God that his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has filled the laws on the Lord's demands on their behalf, on my behalf, and that he was punished for their rebellion when their iniquities were laid upon him at the cross. They thank God for that. As such, it is a law that has, has exposed their sin and has driven them to the Saviour. That's what God's law does. It exposes your sin, your sinfulness and your need of salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect obedience to the law in life and in death. Therefore, why on earth would Christians want to make void God's laws? Like the psalmist, Christians say, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. That's the law of God. Sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Do we want to make void those laws? Or do we want to be like the psalmist in Psalm 1, who the, the man who is blessed, he meditates on the law of God day and night. The longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119, starts with the words, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity, they walk in his ways, 
Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. I will praise thee with uprightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgments. I will keep thy statutes. Oh, forsake me not utterly. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I, for one, do not propose that we tear out the 176 verses of Psalm 119 from the Bible. Far better to read them and meditate upon them day and night. If God's law is not a requirement for those who belong to Jesus and, in other words, people who are covered in the righteousness of Christ, then why is it that when it comes to the promises attached to the new covenant that God has made and of which Jesus is the mediator, God said in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through to 33, Behold the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah and you and me, if you are a Christian, you are under the terms of the new covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people. That promise of God is for all Christians, and they ought to delight in the laws that are written by God, in their hearts and in their minds. And let's face it, if you're a Christian, you are more acutely conscious of God's laws than anyone else. People suppress the truth about God and their conscience, they have conscience which is seared as with a hot iron, but it shouldn't be so with the Christian. You ought to be more in tune with God's laws than anyone else. Why? Because you're a Christian and God has written his law in your inward parts. He has written them in His in your heart and in your mind. And you draw on the grace of God to establish them and to uphold those laws. I'm not saying you succeed, but this is your heart's desire. Just as Christians cast themselves upon the mercy of God when they first um, became Christians, when they were first convicted by those laws of their sins and they cast themselves upon the mercy of God and received Jesus as their saviour from sin. It doesn't end there, does it? That's how it starts. From our perspective, you as a Christian, 
when you when you're first convicted of your sin and you first receive Jesus as your saviour it doesn't end there as a Christian you continue day by day to cast yourself upon the mercy of God and draw on his grace to establish his law Christians of all people know that what the law demands, Jesus provides. The law, all it can do is demand from us. But Jesus, he provides the grace that we need. We don't uphold God's laws, establish God's laws in our own strength. If we did, then we would not never need Jesus in the first place. We're forever casting ourselves upon the grace of Jesus and that law that God gives us every time we look at it every time I look at it I I throw myself back upon Jesus and upon his grace the grace that saved me and upholds me in order that I can establish God's law or seek to at any rate What all this means for you as a Christian is that far from the law being abolished, it is upheld in your position before God in as much you are accepted precisely because the beloved Saviour fulfilled the law's demands on your behalf. So there you have it, the law has been established there and also the law continues to be upheld in your daily practice when time and again you confess your sin and you cast yourself upon your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who loved you and who gave himself for you. Amen.